Good morning. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Psalm chapter 3. Psalm 3. We're going to be continuing our series, Psalms for the Journey, Volume 2, as we walk through the first several psalms. So if you missed the first couple, I'd encourage you to go back and read or watch those on our website or on our Facebook page. Uh, you'll be blessed by that. We're going to be continuing Psalm 3 this morning. This morning we're going to see uh, David at one of the weakest moments in his life. I hope you can relate to that. I don't know about y'all, but this morning I feel weak. I'm tired. I'm anxious about things. And we're going to see David in that spot this morning. He's scared. He's unsure of the future. But the truth we'll see this morning in David's life is also true for us. No matter what we face, salvation belongs to the Lord. Look with me at Psalm 3. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Have you ever faced a time in your life where fear completely gripped your heart? Maybe you've experienced a fear or anxiety over a, a physical, tangible object. When I was a kid, I grew up in Alabama, and I grew up in uh, an area where rattlesnakes were prominent. Every year in March, my hometown puts on this big festival called the Rattlesnake Rodeo to celebrate these creatures. I don't know about y'all, but I'm not okay celebrating things that kill me. Um, I, I always thought it was a, a dumb and, and stupid tradition. But when I was 10 or 11 years old, I will never forget playing baseball in my front yard uh, with some friends and my brother. Uh, and as I was running across the yard, I looked down to see an Easter Diamondback rattlesnake squarely between my legs. With his body co coiled up, his mouth open, fangs exposed, his rattle making a noise that still makes my skin crawl, fear gripped my heart and my body. I'm sure I've never run faster than I did that day. To this day, when I see a snake, that instinctual fear kicks in, right? If I'm mowing the yard on the, on the big lawnmower and I see a snake, I'm still just, it jerks. It jerks my whole, my whole body. But there are other fears in life that, that can be just as real and just as difficult to shake. Several years ago, we had the chance to take a vacation and go on a cruise to Alaska. It was a great time, but there was one point in this trip where this kind of fear consumed me once again. Sarah and her sister and I were out exploring Seattle on the back end of our trip, and we went to see the, the famous fish market and the Space Needle, and we're going to go eat some lunch. But there was a moment as we were getting off the train uh, at one of the stops where we found uh, ourselves in an unfamiliar place, surrounded by an unfamiliar people, and anxiety gripped my heart again. We got off the train, and there was a group of, of homeless people outside the train station, and normally that doesn't that doesn't bother me. We see that occasionally, and we, we, we have sympathy, and we reach out to them. But this group was, was large. It numbered in the dozens, and they took up the entire sidewalk for almost a full city block, right in the direction that we were heading. 
I grabbed a hold of both of their hands, and we, we made it through unscathed. But in that moment, I was incredibly fearful and anxious about what could have happened. We all face moments like these in our lives where fear is the only feeling we experience. And David was no different. At this stage in his life, David is on the run. You can see in the title of this psalm, it says, A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. To get the full backstory of what's going on in, in this particular psalm, I'd encourage you to go back and read 2 Samuel 13 to 15 uh, sometime this week, just so you can kind of see a little bit of the fuller picture. But at this very moment, Absalom is marching to Jerusalem with the intention of unseating David from this throne by force. Absalom has already killed another one of David's sons, and he's on a crusade. He has gathered up an army of men who have been loyal to David, and David sees the writing on the wall. This is more than just a little bit of family drama, although if you go back and read the full story, you'll see that there's plenty of family drama. This is setting up to be an all-out civil war within the royal family. The throne is on the line. David's legacy, David's life is on the line. But here in this psalm, we see mighty King David literally running for the hills. You'll remember that David's not a wimpy king. This guy's the guy who killed Goliath, nine-foot giant with a stone, and cut off his head to defeat the Philistines. David, as, he was, as a young man, killed a lion and a bear with his bare hands. The Israelites would sing songs of David and his military conquests. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. This is a guy who knew how to fight. He demonstrated a great deal of military power and prowess as he led Israel. But in this moment in his life, he's running scared of one of his own sons. So as we look at this song today, we're going to see where David's true confidence was found. And it was not in his own abilities or gifts. It wasn't in his power or his reputation. David knew that true salvation belongs only to God. As we look at God's word this morning, we're going to see four postures of David. And the first thing we see from David in this psalm is doubt. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 again. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. O Lord. Even in those first couple of words, you, you hear the cry of, of a desperate man. This once mighty king has been humbled and beaten down. He cries out to God in agony. He cries out to God in fear. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Again, this is the same guy who looked at the Philistine army led by a guy who was probably twice his size and said, I got this. But now the enemy looks fierce. Notice something interesting here, though. David is worried about the sheer number of them. How many are my foes? How many are rising against me? But he's also worried about the message that they're speaking. Many are saying there is no salvation for him and God. There's no hope for you, David. We've got you cornered now. There's no way even God can get you out of this. And for a moment, it seems like David starts to believe him. God, have you really forsaken me? Have you forgotten about me? I'm the guy, I'm the man after your own heart. Don't you see what's happening? Don't you care? Have you ever been in a spot like that before? We've all experienced God show up in particular moments of our lives and do something really cool. But I would propose that we've also felt those moments of despair. If we haven't, we will. Just like David, we complain. We question. We doubt. We doubt God's power. We doubt his goodness. We doubt his willingness or even his ability to help us. 
we doubt whether he cares. For you, it might have been when you faced some type of loss like David was looking at. Maybe you've lost someone you cared about. We question and wonder, God, do you see me? Do you see my hurt? Can you see my pain? Or maybe it's a spot like David is now where our livelihood is on the line. David could be killed, but even if he's not, there's a chance he could lose the throne. He could lose the palace and the kingdom that God has given him the charge to lead. What happens then? What happens if you lose your job or your house? Do you begin to question whether God could truly provide for you and your family? Do you wonder why bad things happen to you who's trying to be good or wonder why everybody seems to be against you? That's exactly where David finds himself as he's writing this psalm this morning. He's on the run, literally running for his life, and he looks back and wonders, God, are you really there? It's easy for us when we face these situations that seem so dire to doubt and complain. The problem for David and for us in these moments is that we're so focused on the problem in front of us that we forget the God who lives in us. We start to believe the lie that there's no hope, that even God can't save us from whatever we're facing. You stand screaming at the wind for God to give you any sort of sign or assurance that he cares. And then in this moment of of agony, this moment of despair and hopelessness, a heart full of of anxiety and complaining, we see for the first time in the Psalms this weird word at the end of verse 2, Selah. I'm not going to tell you anything you probably haven't heard this morning. Scholars are, are stumped by this word. They have no idea really what it means other than they suspect it's some sort of musical notation. These Psalms were meant to be sung after all. And most people smarter than me who study these kinds of things believe that this word probably meant one of two things. It either meant to serve as a rest in the music or some sort of key change or a turnaround in the song. And this particular psalm, though, that both of these could be particularly relevant. Beginning in verse 3, we'll see in a minute, the tone of this psalm changes the mood quite significantly. The mood changes from a, a minor key to a major key, and we'll get to that in a minute. But just like a good song, in life things take time to develop. We often want to rush straight from despair and, and conflict to comfort and resolution. We want to see how the good guy wins, but the movie's just getting started, right? But God often wants us to take a breath, to rest. The trials and difficulties we face have a purpose. They have a a meaning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient and the things that are that are unseen are eternal on the surface things often look bleak and dark and hopeless and dismal those moments tend to linger in our heart and this kind of desperation doesn't disappear overnight but hope rises in that moment with a few simple words here from david but you, O Lord. And that brings us to David's next step. David first doubts, and then David submits. Verses 3 and 4, read those verses again with me. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Instantly, instantly you see the, the temperature of this song change, right? 
The first verse is doom and gloom, woe is me. God, are you out there? Can you hear me? Do you care at all? But then David remembers something. Or maybe more accurately, David remembers someone. David moves from complaining about his circumstances to submitting to God despite his circumstances. The situation around David has not changed one bit. He's still on the run. Absalom is still out for blood. His throne, his legacy, his kingdom are fading in the rearview mirror. But David's change in tone comes because he remembers who God is. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. David is fleeing the safety of his palace, but finds shelter in the person of God. Even though David is surrounded by the enemy, God shields him. God protects him from the arrows of the enemy. Along with this change of tone also comes a change in posture. If you look back at the backstory of this psalm, we'll see something really interesting. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 30 says, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. David was running away, his head covered, barefoot, weeping. He had been dejected, desperate, weeping, and without hope. David was mourning as if defeat was already sure. But now, look what it says in verse 3. God was the lifter of his head. David's focus shifts from the circumstances to the Creator. When God lifts your head... The circumstances and troubles of this world begin to fade as we submit to the glory and wonder of our King. David says in Psalm 28, The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to Him. His head is no longer covered as if in mourning. God is His strength. God is His shield. My heart exults. My heart rejoices. Notice also here that that David uses this phrase, my glory. He sees the majesty of God and he is reminded that God is the one who protects. God is the one who shields. All those military victories that people gave David credit for, that belonged to God. God was the one who delivered David and the Israelites from the hand of Goliath and the Philistines. God was the one who helped him lead the nation. God gave him the crown in the first place. For David's entire life, God had been a shield around him. This is not just some dinky thing that can block an arrow, but the sovereign Lord of the universe covered him with protection on all sides. So what's the only appropriate response but to say, okay, God, I give up. I need you. I can't do this on my own. I can't protect myself. Here David was running like a scared kid, and God lifts his head so that David can, sh- can see the shield of God protecting him. But not only is God offering protection from the arrows and sword of the enemy, God also hears David's cry and gives him ammunition to fight the lies of the enemy. Look with me at verse 4 again. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Remember in verse 2 that David began to feel weak. He doubted when he heard the enemy say, there's no salvation for him in God. Is that true? God, do you hear me? Can you still save me? The reason that David is struggling here is that he's never known defeat like this before. God had always been there with him. It's in this moment that David realizes something. If God has forgotten him, if God truly doesn't see him or hear him, 
then there is no salvation for David, even in God. There's, if there's no salvation for David in God, there's no salvation for David at all. There's no salvation in himself either. He can't get himself out of this mess. He can't rest on his resume or his past accomplishments. He's skipping town with his tail between his legs, and he knows one significant truth. I can't save myself. If God can't save me, I am surely lost. But here in this moment, David cries out to God, and God answers him. In the middle of David's doubt, he heard the very voice of God. As David submits himself and puts his very life in God's hands, God answers his cry. And this is, this is significant. God answers him from his holy hill. And that's significant on a couple of levels. I want you to look with me. God's holy hill is where God resides. So in one sense, this is a reminder again for David that God is sovereign and he reigns over all things. No matter our circumstances, God is still seated in power and glory and majesty in heaven. And nothing on earth can change that. This assurance that God can hear David even in the valley of doubt can give us confidence that God hears our cries too. But God's holy hill could also be a reference to Mount Zion or Jerusalem, the very place that David was running away from. When David began to doubt, he started running away from God. But in God's goodness, he heard David's cry and he responded. God answered from his holy hill. So in order for David to hear and listen to the voice of God, he's got to turn around. He has to repent. He's, also, he's already confessed that he can't save himself. If he could, he wouldn't be running away. But now he has to repent and return to the Lord, his glory, the lifter of his head. And again, we see this word, Selah. Take a breath. Rest. That brings us to verse 5, where we see David trust. Read verses 5 and 6 with me again. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I don't know about you guys, but I love a good action movie. You know the kind that has no plot whatsoever. There's really not even any drama or intrigue. In the first three minutes of the movie, you know who the good guy is, who the bad guy is, and who's going to win, right? All that's left is a bunch of explosions and fight scenes. Mindless entertainment, but I can't help myself. I like them. But there's one thing I've noticed about these movies that, that really bugs me. It kind of drives me nuts. Is they want the action to be nonstop, so the good guy never gets a break. He never takes a nap. He never goes to sleep. Some of these movies take place over multiple days, it seems like, but the good guy's always on the run. Never slows down, never takes time to rest. If they ever try, it only takes three and a half seconds for the bad guy to find him, and then his whole chase starts over again, right? This is kind of where David finds himself. He's on the run. The bad guy's not slowing down. He's breathing down David's neck. But here in verse 5, David lays down to rest. When David submits to the power and sovereignty of God and recognizes that God is his shield and his glory, then David lays down and takes a nap. David says here, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. God shielded him. Even while he was sleeping, God protected and provided for him. Psalm chapter 4, verse 8 says, In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Have you ever had one of those naps? 
that brought you real, tangible, spiritual benefit. I'm not talking about the little cat nap on your lunch break. I'm talking about the kind of rest where you wake up and you feel refreshed and whole again. It doesn't get much better for that for us. Solomon says of the blessed man in Proverbs chapter 3, If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie, when you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. So what's the spiritual benefit of this rest for David? Look at verse 6. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David wakes up from this nap and acknowledges again that God is the one who sustained him and protected him. And then he says, I will not be afraid. That's a pretty stark contrast from verse 1, right? God, do you see me? Many are rising against me. I'm running for my life here. But now... David trusts God enough to say, I will not be afraid. I'm only one guy. There's thousands of them, but I'm not afraid because the Lord sustains me. I can't trust myself. I can't save myself, but the Lord is a shield about me. He's the lifter of my head. He's the one who sustains me. What have I to fear? Psalm 27 says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. David was so confident and sure in God's provision that he was able to rest and sleep while he was fleeing for his life. The fear of death the fear of losing his kingdom, the anxiety of losing everything was great. But David knew that God was greater. The Lord sustains, the Lord provides, the Lord saves. Because of who God is, David trusted him and so can we. David's ability to trust God had nothing to do with his circumstances. David's ability to trust God had everything to do with the person and character of God. When you trust God, Fear fades. Anxiety dissipates. Despair and discouragement fall away because of the one who is your glory, the lifter of your head. When we see God for who he is, then we call to him, not in fear, but in confidence, because he is our shield and protector. And that's exactly what David does next. Look with me at verses 7 and 8 as we see David worship. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. You'll notice that there's no break here between verses 6 and 7. There's no musical rest. This is the crescendo, the grand finale. David submits to God in rest, and then he submits to God in worship. He cries out, Arise, O Lord, save me. Where's his focus? It's no longer on the number of the enemies, but on the mighty one who can save. He declares that God strikes his enemies on the cheek and breaks the teeth of the wicked. That's a pretty graphic description of the power and might and justice of God. This is no slap on the hand or a flick of the cheek. This is a bone-crushing blow that literally breaks the enemy. The thousands that oppose David cannot stand before the one true God. Their efforts, their schemes, their strategies and plans all fail with one swing from God's mighty hand. David rests in this confidence, knowing that he no longer has to fight his battles. Salvation is not found in his legacy. Salvation is not found in his position 
or power as the king. Salvation is not found in his own good deeds or his own worship. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There is no other way. There is no other path forward besides trusting in God. He is the only way. David ends this song with a familiar theme from the first two songs we looked at, Psalm 1 and 2. Your blessing be on your people. If you remember back to those first two psalms, the blessed man is the one who delights in God's word and obeys it. The blessed man is the one who finds his refuge in God. Jesus said in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Blessing is found in obeying God and trusting him and hearing his voice as the good shepherd because salvation belongs only to him. Before we leave today, I'd be doing a disservice not to connect some of these dots. This song was written by David at a very specific time in his life, but but church family, this song is the message of the gospel. The question that God is asking us this morning is the same question he asked Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden. Where are you? Are you scared? Are you fearful because of the circumstances you face in life? Has anxiety gripped your heart because you're afraid of losing a loved one or losing a job or losing influence? When was the last time you saw God move in your own heart? Or are you too focused on the bad things happening around you? This is where it gets hard for some of us. Do you fear losing your influence in your family as you get older? Are you doubting whether your life had any purpose or meaning? Some of, this, some of us in this room are exactly where David was in verses 1 and 2. We're complaining. We're doubting. We're fearful. And all we want to do is take our principles and go hide in a cave somewhere and hope the world around us will just let us be and ride off into the sunset. Church, that's not the place God wants you to be. Maybe you can see past the circumstances. Maybe you have a clear picture of who God is. You've, you submit to him as a shield to protect you. You look to him for encouragement. You cry aloud to him in prayer. But what next? Is that where God wants you to stay? This path that we see David follow is really a progression. It's a, prog- a progression of fear. David moves from fearing man, fearing circumstances, to fearing God and God alone. David begins this psalm complaining about how strong his enemies are. But he doesn't stay there. He knows God, so he fixes his eyes on God until he can truly submit and trust and rest in the work of God. In this psalm, David has to acknowledge that he can't save himself. There's no amount of human strength or cunning that can defeat his enemy. There's too many of them. There's no amount of diplomacy or skilled speech that can stop the charge of Absalom toward the throne. Only God can save. Salvation belongs only to the Lord. But what about for us? I want you to look at something with a new set of glasses for just a minute. When you look at this psalm, realize who your true enemy is. It's not another person. It's not people who disagree with you. It's not people of a different background or political belief. The enemy of the Christian is sin. Oh Lord, how many are my sins? They rise against me. My sinful heart cries out, there is no salvation for you in God. You're so bad, even God can't save you. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You lift my head to see you for who you are. I cry out to God, and he heard me, and he answered me from his holy hill. Church, when we are weak and afraid in our sin, God calls us to lift our face up to him on his holy hill and see Jesus. He is glorious. He is majestic. He is perfect And because of his great and perfect love for you, he climbed a hill and laid down his life 
so that you and I could be forgiven. He fought the battle that we were too weak to fight. He struck sin on the cheek and he broke its teeth. He took the sting out of death and took victory over sin through his shed blood. And now he reigns in power and majesty and glory over all who belong to him because salvation belongs to the Lord. There are some of you here who have spent your entire life running, just like David. When you were young, you were confident in your own abilities and skills. You ran right at Goliath, ready to take the battlefield. You attempted great feats for God, but just like David found out, those good works cannot save you. No matter how many giants you slay in your life, you cannot defeat the true enemy, your own sin. In your own strength, it will crush you. You have no chance of victory. But you can call out to God today, save me, O God. I can't defeat this enemy on my own because the enemy is me. Psalm 34 says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Deliverance and salvation are there for those who seek the Lord. God can save the worst sinners. I can say that with confidence because he saved me. On our own, all we know how to do is hide in shame, just like David did in this psalm, and just like Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3. Our sin crushes us in fear, but God is rich in mercy. He's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love. He hears our cries, and he answers us from his holy hill. If you've never called out to God in desperation for him to save you, don't wait. Cry out to him today. He will hear you. And here's the good news. He's already put his answer on the table. Trust in him alone for salvation and he will save you. For some of us, we've called out to God. We've received his salvation, but we still look back in doubt. We're still fearful of circumstances or the opinions of man. Matthew chapter 10 says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. In our brokenness, in our weak eyes, this verse sounds harsh to us. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell? That's hard for us because we don't understand the fear of God. We tend to paint that word in church as this nice, casual respect of God. But when you read the full story of Scripture, this idea of fearing God encompasses so much more. This verse in Matthew reminds us that God is holy and He's just and He will not tolerate your sin. Since your sin far outweighs any good you could possibly do, if you're depending on yourself for salvation, you better be afraid. You better be running for the hills, trembling. Condemnation and wrath are wait, waiting for you. However, if you respond to the work of Jesus in faith, and repentance. You grow in the fear and the knowledge of God, and you begin to understand how true and loving and gracious He is. Your gratitude to His gracious offer of salvation grows in love and devotion to Him as you stand in awe that this holy and righteous God would save a screw-up like you. But the fear of God doesn't stop there. Truly, fearing God doesn't just leave us standing with our mouth open in awe. It drives us to our knees in worship and reverence and wonder 
at all that God is and what he's done to show us this love and grace and compassion. How great is this God who looked at you, a sinner, and chose to send his son to die for you. You could look at a postcard of the Grand Canyon and be amazed at the beauty and majesty of God's creation. But that postcard pales in comparison to seeing the glory of it up close. Don't settle for a respect for God that never drives you to worship. When you see God for who he is and what he's done, fall on your face and worship because you don't deserve the love he offers you. You don't deserve his salvation. You can't earn his salvation, but he is rich in mercy. And he offers it to you today with an open hand. Don't settle for looking at a postcard, God. Look at him in all his glory and splendor and respond in a way that brings him glory. Fall on your face and worship. Are you doubting this morning? Are you fearful? The message of this today is God is worthy of our trust. So trust him. Cry out to him. Rest in confidence, knowing that he's already guaranteed victory over sin and over death if we respond to him in faith and repentance. We can't keep running to sin. We have to return to him. We have to trust him. No matter what you face, salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray together.